Welcome to Being Human. I'm delighted to say that this week's guest is Dr. Peter Levine. He's uh, an author, on my count, of at least 10 books on, on trauma and, and trauma recovery. He's the founder of the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. Uh, Dr. Levine, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure. So my, I've got twin motiva- motivations for having you as a guest. I, um, I personally have done a lot of work on my own birth trauma over the last 10 years, a lot of which has included a lot of body work. And so I'm very interested in your perspective on, on trauma recovery personally, but also as a business coach, I, I see a lot of unresolved trauma playing out in the workplace. This is a topic we don't talk about a lot in yeah. the workplace. Yeah. Um, and I know that you've, you've mentioned it in some of your books, even in the, in the first book, you talk about this problem of reenactment and how that plays out, especially mm-hmm. in the workplace. So, so all of that is, I think, going to be very interesting to a business audience. Uh, so, yeah, I'm so glad to be able to have this, this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think trauma is one of these, you know, there's a fish, no, it's in water. Uh, trauma I, I could be like a major, major trauma or just a, an accumulation of, uh, of smaller traumas or stresses over time that leads to a breakdown in our functioning. And, uh, and as you say that the reenactments, uh, come up much more than people realize in different, uh, even in work situations, some characteristic of one person triggers something in another. And all of a sudden, instead of working cooperatively, they're antagonistic to each other because they're experiencing each other as threat because of the unresolved trauma, the hidden and the hidden reenactment. In a way, you can say we choose our... Uh, not, not just business partners, but our, our, you know, our intimate partners also to fill a, a role to take up, to have a part, uh, in, in, in our reenactment and usually vice versa for the other person as well. In other words, we're attracted to each other in many ways, not entirely, of course, but to a significant degree because of the different trauma that we've had in our own lifetimes. Mm. So maybe let's unpack that a little bit as a probably a great place to start. So what what exactly do we mean by reenactment and why do we feel compelled to to reenact? Yeah. Uh you know this is something that I first uh, examined in in my first book Waking the Tiger Waking the Tiger Healing Trauma and um it it just is you know uh, there isn't like a simple example a simple reason why this happens. You know, Freud believed that reenact, we reenact our traumas, uh, in order to, uh, to, uh, he- uh, heal them essentially. And, uh, I suppose you can look at it that way in, in some instances, but I think it's much deeper li- than that. It's almost like we have in our nervous systems a magnet. And this magnet, it's tuned in a way to a certain frequency. And then you have somebody else with a, and it could be somebody else without their own trauma, but very often again, it's somebody also has their trauma and has their magnet. And these magnets, sometimes they're called strange attractors. 
in, in, in uh, uh, chaos theory. And they just seek each other, you know, the way the uh, electrons seek protons or something. And they're just driven to each other. And it is, of course, it with consciousness, with awareness, it is possible to use our behavioral reenactments, our emotional reenactments, as a way of getting into, of, of accessing our unresolved trauma. And so when we, you know, all of a sudden we were really getting, oh my gosh, I, why am I so uh, upset about this person or angry about this person or fearful about this person? There's something about them. And it could be something like uh, a posture, a gesture. Of course, it could be something like the smell of uh, smoke or alcohol. Um, these are all things that can trigger uh, a reaction that's inside of us that's ready to be triggered in a sense that's waiting to be triggered yeah and i i, I could relate in my own experience my own personal life i went through a long phase in my 20s and 30s i've been very attracted to women who were unavailable which is kind of yeah. a classic pattern um, sure. but i had i think in a large part due to to my own birth trauma felt a separation from my mother and then I think my version of reenactment in that case was continuing to seek women who I couldn't I couldn't bond with I found difficulty bonding with and right yeah, exactly like you say that's a very very common thing and in a way you know sometimes we'll pick a partner who is not available to reduce the likelihood of um, let's see how do I want to say this the risk of becoming attached because what we try to attach to you describing in your earliest formative experiences around birth and after the birth that you were unable to really get a solid attachment with your, with your mother. Um, then we, we don't want that pain again because for a, for a small child, for an infant, for a baby, I mean, something like that is utterly overwhelming. And so because we also carry that baby part inside of us, we, in a way to protect that part, we'll seek somebody who's not available so that we can't really attach it. If we can't really attach, then we can't really lose the attachment. So it's kind of involuted. It has its own logic, its own logical logic. Uh, and we do set up that scenario over and over again. And Again, the, 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 this thing is, okay, is there, how do we get out of something like that? And, you know, my main interest is in, and uh, is in what goes on in the body when people are traumatized. You know, when we're frightened, uh, threatened, or perceive that we're threatened, our bodies stiffen, they tighten, they contract. They also, if this is extreme stress, or if we experience a mortal threat, that our body just also collapses into uh, what's called an immobility state where we're numb, we're not feeling anything. We can go through the movements of life, but we're really not engaged in life. And I talked a lot about that in, uh, in, in one of my other main books, which, which was In an Unspoken Voice. And um, uh, so the key here in, in getting out of this uh, 
this situation is through awareness and through awareness of the body sensations because when we again when we when we're triggered our body is going to be doing some very specific things it's going to brace it's going to retract it's going to stiffen it's going to collapse and if we could become aware of those internal sensations that's the key internal sensations then we can have enough distance to it and what i call renegotiate it um the yeah so um and one of the important things when when our bodies respond when our bodies are primed for trauma um one of the things that we we need to be able to do is to find new experiences in our bodies that basically contradict those of fear terror rage overwhelming helplessness so i don't believe in it it's helpful to relive traumas but it's useful what i call to just visit or just touch in certain sort of trauma so that we can begin to change the experience in our bodies and that really is the key there and I think that's one of the distinctions of your work in terms of what I've read and experienced through ther- therapy is that this focus on the body sensation. So it's not just about constructing a new narrative or feeling the feelings you couldn't feel. It's also yeah. about engaging at the physical level and, and having the sensations that you, you couldn't have and, the, and expressing in the body what yeah. you couldn't express at the time. Is it, is it something like that? Yeah, yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, the idea is not to relive the trauma because that doesn't really help. It, uh, and to the nervous system, reliving it isn't any different than the original event. So you also risk the, the re-traumatization. But it's, but there's just really no logic to why you would want people to relive trauma. But again, they do need to notice what their responses are to the reminders of the trauma, if you like. So is it, is that, it like reliving a little bit of it or, or is it something different? Yeah, I, I, you know, instead of reliving, whoops, let me get my pencil here. Instead of reliving, I, 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 I call it revisiting and then looking for new experiences. You know, it's an interesting area of research, which I talk about in another one of my books, uh, trauma and memory, brain, body, and the search for the which I just finished pain. reading. Actually, yeah. Oh, you did okay. All right, great. Well, then you're 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 aware of this. Um, uh, what was I talking about? Remind me. Revisit revisiting versus uh, reliving. Reliving, yeah, yeah. Revisiting. So revisiting is where we really again are just touching into uh, what are called procedural memories or the body memories about the trauma. Because that's really what drives the whole process of reenactment and, and, uh, and, and other symptoms, of course. So it's, it, it's really becoming aware of what our body is wanting to do. Use that something that our body was unable to do many, many years ago, some, sometimes decades ago. Um, Let's see, I can give you a, a small example of this. This, was, this is what really brought me to my understanding of trauma. And this is an event that happened, I think it was, no, it was, it was 1969. 
And I was asked to see this young, this woman. She was in her 24, I think. And uh, she had been suffering from all kinds of physical symptoms. Chronic fatigue, irritable bowel, uh, migraines, severe PMS, urinary problem. And, uh, and she'd been sent to doctor to doctor. And finally, she was sent to a psychiatrist because she also had severe panic attacks and agoraphobia. She was, she could barely, she could barely leave the, the her house even with her husband. So, uh, the psychiatrist uh, tried a couple of medications and that didn't really help. So I had been developing some uh, relaxation exercises in the 1960s, some body, mind, mind, body exercises. And they were, seemed to be quite powerful. I'd worked with a number of people who had high blood pressure and usually within 20 minutes, their blood pressure would drop to a normal or near no- normal level, even if it was 20, 30 uh, degrees more. Uh, so he thought that maybe some of those relaxation procedures would be helpful for her. And I could see when she came into the consulting room, I could see her heart was beating at about, about 110, 120 beats a minute. Uh, obviously, and her eyes were like deer in the headlight. Grabbed onto me, grabbed onto my eyes. And, uh, and, that, and that was the first indication of what was really going on. So anyhow, I had her do some of these relaxation exercises in the jaw and the neck, shoulders. And her heart rate started coming down. And I was quite relieved. And it went down, but it went to like from 120 to 110 to 100 to 90 to 80 to 70 to 60 to 50 to. And she turned pale white. And that opened her eyes and looked at me just. Uh, again, the deer in the headlights eyes and said, I'm dying, I'm dying. Don't let me die. Help me, help me, doctor. Don't let me die. I'm dying. And so at that moment, I had an image of a tiger crouched at the far end of the consulting room. And without quite knowing why, then at the time, I commanded her. I said, Nancy, there's a tiger. There's a tiger chasing you. Run, climb these rocks and escape. I discovered later, of course, where this came from. Uh, but uh, after a while, her body started to, her hands would become very cold. She would shake and tremble, perspire. Then her hands would start getting warmer. There'd be a deep, spontaneous breath. And these cycles went on for 30, 40 minutes. And um, at the end, she opened her eyes and she looked at me, not grabbing onto me with her eyes this time, but just reaching for contact. And she, she said, do you want to know what happened? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, well, when you, ta- when you mentioned the, the, the tiger, I could see the tiger. We possibly were seeing the same tiger. <laughs> And, uh, and then when you said he's chasing me and run, run to escape, my legs felt like lead, like I was trying to walk through mud. But when you continued to con- encourage me, 
I could then feel power coming into my legs. And I climbed these rocks and looked down. And instead of seeing the tiger, I saw myself at the age of four having a routine tonsillectomy with ether and, and the ether mask was forced onto me while I was being held down by doctors and the nurses. And um, so her body had wanted to run and escape from being on that operating table for 20 years. And then when she finally had the opportunity to renegotiate that, and then she was able to describe what she was feeling now, which was being held in warm, tingling waves. And I thought, well, where does that come from? And again, remember, in 1969, there was really nothing written about trauma. I mean, it was, uh, you know, shell shock from World War One, but, you know, it wasn't considered to be something that widely that people had, that people exp had experience. experience. So, and again, these can be routine, routine uh, experiences. They can be, of course, coming from households where, um, oh, by the way, uh, of course, the reason that I saw the tiger was I was actually in a seminar and in the seminar, one of the professors talked about, uh, that uh, this uh, phenomenon when animals are restrained, they go into an immobility state. And that's where, where, when, where Nancy was, she was in a chronic immobility state. And that's what her panic attacks were about. Um, and, but the, the thing is, in animals, this is, this is meant to be time limited, normally time limited. So the animal goes into the immobility and comes out. But if the animal is frightened when it goes into the immobility or frightened as it starts to come out of the immobility, it can stay there almost indefinitely. So this is, again, not consciously understanding it, but this image of the tiger popping out and sharing that vision in a way with her allowed her to come out of her immobility state. And again, that was the, the reason why I gave the, that first book the title, Waking the Tiger, because that's exactly what had happened. We had awakened the tiger and the escape from the tiger and the escape that her body had wanted to do for decades, well, for, for uh, 20, for two, uh, for two decades. And somehow you had an intuition that that might be what she needed to visualize. That's right. It was an intuition and the intuition played out in that image. And the image was informed by this particular graduate seminar that I was taking at, at Berkeley. So, and, and I think that's one of the times that I really understood how important intuition is. And again, when you're traumatized, that interferes with our capacity for intuition. So we're not able to really judge a person, you know, when we first meet them. Uh, you know, uh, if, if, if we have a trigger, we're not going to be able to do that. But if we're present in ourselves and not triggered, then we will get a good intuition. Is this a person that I want to spend time with? Is this a person that I can work with? You know, all of these things come, they're visceral senses. You know, it's, like people talk about gut instincts. Well, that's exactly where they are. They, they come from the gut. And again, in trauma, that information flow gets tremendously disrupted. 
Right. And I think that when I look at my pattern of follow, following my intuition, it was towards, I, I suppose the way that I've worked has probably been a little bit more t- in terms of your perspective, maybe a bit too far on the reliving end versus the revisiting end. But yeah. nonetheless, I think I've made big progress. But it was the, it was that, it was, was definitely that, that intuition that I started to recover when I stopped drinking because of one of the ways I'd initiated anesthetized uh-huh. myself right. was with, 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 with heavy self-medication, yeah. self-medication. And I, and I sort of with, with some support stopped that. And I started to, I think, regain some intuition and then it was my intuition that had me um re reconnect with um i suppose to to some level yeah my body actually it started with Mm -hmm. my body and then i read some of the books of uh art janov which i'm guessing you've probably got some opinions on but um but finding that that mode of working on myself was actually what helped me recover. And, um, it was all intuition driven, despite the fact that anything I read online about any of this work was, um, was very critical. And, and I just, I just trusted my intuition in spite of a lot of what of the opinions I was reading about that type of work. Right. And, and a lot of know, people are, sorry, go on. Yeah. I was going to say also something about intuition is for me, intuition is the interface between mind knowledge and being and it requires both it requires both i mean i think about younger uh, you know when he uh, attacked afghanistan and iraq he said these are my gut instincts to do this well he didn't have any background knowledge he really didn't or he would have known about the history of the region. He would have known to do things differently. But so that, that can be a problem when a person believes they're, they're connected to their gut, but the gut is still sending information as though the trauma was existing. So we're not getting mm. new information. We're in a way where it's become delusional. It's almost like the gut is directing us towards a reenactment rather than what's most exactly. instead of towards intuition. That, that, mm. That's well said. Yeah. Um, and and the other the other I suppose even now, right? I, I'll still and you pick up on this in your last book. Um, one of the 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 key uh, pushbacks for me when I talk about the fact that I relive or revisit a lot of my early trauma as a way to recover from it is. Yeah, but you should leave the past in the past. And how can you remember all of that stuff? And um, really, you should be moving on. And and I think that yeah. mindset is still enormously prevalent in society. And you I think, very eloquently talk about memory in your book and how there is validity in in accessing these these former experiences. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about that? Okay. I just breathed in my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't hear the last part of the question. They just, just yeah. Um, let's talk about memory a little bit and in, implicit, explicit memory, uh-huh. and and why there is value in revisiting these these. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, there are basically two types of memory, and the and these are memories that are explicit, 
and those that are implicit. Explicit memories, for example, <coughs> declarative memory. In other words, I remember that I have a, a an interview with a person on Zoom at 10 o'clock in the morning. And so I know, you know, at 9.30, I turn my computer on and so forth. If I go into the market, I may have a list or a list in my mind of items that I need. So these are the laundry list, the shopping list of the memory world. They're conscious, they're discreet. Um, and that's what, when people think about memory, even many <coughs> many therapists, that's the way, that's the kind of memory that they're believing is what memory is. But that's just one small type of memory. And in terms of the power it has over us, that has the most, the smallest, the smallest effect. Then there's another form of uh, implicit memory, explicit memory, which is called uh, autobiographical memory. And I'll come back to that in a, in a moment. Then we have the uh, implicit memories. And these are not conscious. They happen to us rather than us deliberately calling them up. And there are two types there. There's emotional memory. And then there's also um, what, some, what are called procedural memories or sometimes called body memories. And um, so if we're talking about a trigger, all of a sudden we go into an emotional state. Well, that's an, an implicit memory. It's an emotional memory. We're actually emotionally remembering what happened. Uh, yeah. And then even deeper than the emotional memories are what are called procedural memories. And these are things that the body does, that the body learns. You know the expression, once you've learned to ride a bike, you'll never forget. And also when we're first learning to ride a bicycle, maybe with the guidance of a parent or an older sibling who's at our side, and then we they let go, and then we're riding. So we have to learn very quickly what the body needs to do. And it's not a conscious thing. You know, you can't, you can't learn how to ski from a book. You have to have somebody there to help guide what your body is doing. And again, the learning, as an example with a bike, comes, uh, is almost one trial. And then once a memory gets fixed, it stays fixed. But what if that procedural memory, that body memory, is one of fight or flight, is one of uh, twisting, of, of one of uh, constricting, of one of collapsing, then that's the memory that has to be accessed and it has to be changed, has to go to completion as it did with Nancy. Um, let's see. Now, we need uh, to, as I mentioned before, not just feel the emotional, that's important. There's no question about that. But what's underlying the emotion? And you, and always, almost always, always, that's something that the body is, where the body is reacting. And that evokes the emotion. Uh, 
So we need not just to experience the emotion, but to experience what's underneath the emotion. There's a, there's a, a very interesting area of active research now. It's called reconsolidation theory. Right. And basically the idea here is that when you, uh, and I, and I go over this in detail in the book, but the, the basic idea is that, um, when a memory goes from short term to longer term memory, so we have a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is very good at short term memory, but then it needs to bring it into long term memory, which involves different parts of the brain. Um, and uh, certain proteins uh, allow this to happen. So it changes the synaptic conductivity. It changes the structure of the dendrites. And, um, and that's how a memory becomes solidified. However, and this is the interesting part, if you have a memory, like a fear memory, and that memory is coming up and you interfere with the protein synthesis, so like proteins that we were talking before, then that memory essentially becomes erased. Now, uh, and and again, this is something that's been demonstrated with, with mice, with rats. And uh, so what, when I talk about revisiting a trauma, it's touching in the trauma enough to bring up those circuits so that new responses can happen. And those will then be the new memories because they'll be reconsolidate, reconsolidated as a successful escape as it was for Nancy. Of course, different things for different people. And now that becomes the memory. So it's not that we erase the memory. We actually, in a way, replace the memory through these molecular mechanisms. Right, and I think that's what's so important for people to understand is that these memories aren't aren't fixed. We reconstruct it anew in the present every time. And and the second point is that it, that these these memories lie kind of dormant in the body. Well, dormant at least from a conscious perspective, they're they're active, but they right. they lie beneath our consciousness um, for for in perpetuity. Right? I mean. I'm still accessing your body memory quote from, from my birth now um, in my 40s. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing here is it's, it's fine to access it. We just don't want to get stuck in it. You know, that's why I say I don't believe in memory erasure. Because we will always have some access to those memories. But each time we have the opportunity to get a new reconsolidated memory. And, you know, people say, well, how long will it take me to get over my trauma? Well, it's not a question you can really honestly answer because when we've had a lot of trauma, we'll keep coming to it, but we don't have to be bumping into it. We don't have to get caught on it like a, like a, uh, the sharp edge of a, of a bookcase, something like that. Mm. We just, in it we hurt ourselves but if it's a softer contour then we just kind of brush against it and move through and each time we do that we you know people are, are used to say we put the memory to rest in the past where it belongs well that's only one part of it the 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 important part is that we actually in the present are creating new 
bodily experiences that in a way not only contradict those of, of fear of terror, of helplessness, they not only do that, but they, but we actually have a new memory of what happened. So it's not like we put the memory in the past, but we're taking the past memory, bringing it into the present, then reconsolidating it, having new emotional and physical experiences. And then we move on because trauma in a way is a disorder of not being able to be, not to have the capacity to be in the here and now. Mm. That's really what trauma is. It's a disorder in presence. Right, right. Yeah. Because this this continual reenactment blocks us from being. Exactly. It doesn't allow us. That's right. It doesn't allow us to be in the, to really be in the present, to be fully in the present, to be in the here and now. And what, what you've just said there reminds me of that quote from John Bradshaw. It talks about, he said, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. That sounds strange. It may sound strange to people, but that's this idea. We can reconstruct it, but not in a, in a false way, right? This is in a connected that's right. way. That's you, right. Yeah. Uh, um, authentic. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because you actually have created those new experiences. Now, you need some help in guiding the client in this way, of course. You know, and, uh, and, and allying with the inner child, um, you know, because we've learned to dissociate because of these continued pains and strife in our lives. We've learned to, to be able to do that. So again, in doing therapeutic work, it's bringing those parts of experience that have been disconnected from each other back together. So we experience ourselves as a coherent whole. Right. And, and I think as we talk here, we, we talk a lot. And one of the ways that people sort of think about working on trauma, if they think about it at all, is they think about the individual and, and maybe the therapist. But you talk a lot about indigenous people and practices and how historically communities have dealt with, with trauma. And it's, it's much less about the individual. Could you talk a bit about yeah, that? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when I started to teach at the uh, Hopi Guidance Center in uh, in uh, Arizona, in northern Arizona, um, usually I teach in my training uh, by doing explaining theory, doing a demonstration, and having people practice. And so when I asked for a volunteer, nobody came up. And, uh, so I continued, but I was realizing that I needed some information that I didn't have. So, uh, at the time there was an anthropologist visiting. And so I, I asked him to talk about, uh, his observations. And basically his primary observation is that the Hopis do not see themselves as individual people. They see themselves in terms of family, village, tribe. So when I, I reframed my question and, and my request, I said, hmm, does somebody want to present a case? And these, the people who worked there were extremely astute. You know, they had, uh, some of them had graduate degrees, one uh, PhD, or was, was, was going for a PhD. 
And uh, so I asked them if they wanted to kind of present a case of somebody they were working with. And so they did. This is a, 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 a client who as a girl was sexually abused. Then uh, as an adolescent, she fell into a river and almost drowned. And I said, well, is there anybody here who has had an experience similar to hers? And uh, then somebody immediately said, I, I do. I said, well, would you be willing to do some work with me right now so that you have more of an understanding and more of the tools in working with this client? And then there was no problem. People were glad to volunteer and to learn that way. But I had to understand that they don't see themselves as an individual working on themselves, mm. but only as something that affects the whole community. And I think that's the part that we are sadly missing in our modern, you know, Western cultures is that we over rely on the individual. I mean, and there's, of course, there's been valuable things. It has a big uh, tops, uh, you know, plus side. In that, you know, we, we have competition, we invent, we, you know, do things like that. We hopefully collaborate. Um, but again, most of it is about the individual. You know, it's about the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs or the Elon Musk or whatever. And, but because of that, we alienate ourselves from others and also miss the potential for even richer collaboration. And I think bringing it back to maybe some of your interests in the workplace, you really want people who are not triggering each other or who know how to handle it if they're triggering each other. And um, and you want to be able to help them move out of their trauma because when you're in trauma, you're not going to be cooperative. It's going to meet me against the world. So if you then can attenuate that and soften that and maybe even do some individual work with the people, then the, the, when you come out of the trauma nervous system, which is the sympathetic fight or flight or what's also called the immobility collapse response with the, uh, vague, the uh, 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve involved, when you... Um, when that happens, then the nervous system has its third function, which uh, Stephen Porges, a very dear friend and colleague, calls the social engagement system. And social engagement system is should be the default setting of our nervous system. So when we're not in fight or flight or experiencing mortal threat, our instincts are for social communication. I mean, go to any restaurant. And just watch it. You don't have to even be listening. You're just looking at people with each other, contacting each other, speaking with each other, working out problems from their work. That is a very deep instinct to connect with others and to collaborate. And it's probably what gave us the edge, an evolutionary edge, because we were able to share information with each other. And to communicate that. So when the first person who made an arrowhead by accidentally, you know, uh, striking a, a flint to, you know, start a fire, and then all of a sudden they realize this is a sharp thing and then could be, you know, tied to a stick or even fire itself. You know? mm. And to be able to communicate that. And then in a short period of time, everybody everywhere in the world, as it were, even without the Internet, <laughs> 
was making fires or making, you know, weapons. So collaboration is a, is a tremendously important part of the mammalian nervous system function. So right, and and I think in the it's a in the workplace, it's like we have allowable topics for collaboration or allowable spheres of collaboration. But one that seems to be off limits is um, helping people heal from their past. That's yeah. like, and, and I can kind of get that, right? I mean, we we could you know businesses aren't necessarily there to help people heal but i guess yeah. it could be as a space within the context of right sure. business where we, questions like sure. what from your past do you think yeah. may yeah. have contributed yeah. to you reacting in that right. way let's say. right and you need somebody to facilitate that you know what they're doing because mm. uh, again you're, you're not wanting to well in any case you're not wanting to have them relive the traumas but to just notice how they're triggered and then to be able to create new experiences in themselves that allows them and the other person to be in the here and now and to uh, work together and through social engagement system and to collaborate. Because I think that's the real power. And it always has been the real power of the human being. I actually, I like your, uh, I like the title of your, um, your organization or your webinar, uh, being human. I mean, that's what we're looking for. And, you know, there's another thing. It, there's a museum in, in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, a musical instrument museum. It's a wonderful museum. It's one of the best museums I've ever been to, really, uh, anywhere in the world. And very few people talk about it. But anyhow, when you walk in, there's a, a sign that says, music is the language which connects everyone in the world, something like that. And, uh, and I agree with that. But also trauma <laughs> and trauma healing is also what connects everybody in the world. Yeah. Because we all share some degree of traumatization. Nobody gets through life without that. I've said that trauma is a fact of life. But it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And again, we can see these opportunities if we feel safe enough with another person and with a facilitator, then they can begin to discover what's being triggered and to be able to do something to be able to change that. And then with the goal, if you like, of coming back into the here and now towards a, a social engagement, towards collaboration rather than, because very often, uh, I'd say in the state for sure, uh, you know, uh, even in the office place, it's about competition. You know, who's going to get to the next position and so forth. And of course, I mean, that's, that's natural, I guess. Um, but it becomes self-defeating after a certain amount of time. So you want, I guess, what you might call healthy competition, but competition which is primarily based on collaboration and cooperation. Mm. So I think that's the opportunity for people in business and any situation. I mean, teachers who have kids, uh, you know, you have a lot of kids uh, in the school are highly traumatized, highly, right. highly traumatized. I mean, I don't know if this stat still stands, but did you, I think in Waking the Tower, you said 20, 25% of males, 33% of females sexually uh, experience sexual trauma. I don't know if that's still. Yeah, and that was back in, in the, in the mm. uh, 
mid nineties, the early nineties. And, uh, it's much more than that. I think we know now, but yeah, I guess I was a little bit ahead of my time in saying, seeing how pervasive this is, you know, there's a, 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 a questionnaire. It's called the ACES, A-C-E-S, ACES. And it's, uh, it's adverse childhood experiences. The ACE. And you just, there are nine questions, I think. And you just, yes, no, yes, no. So if you have more than three of these, you're very likely to develop all, to have all kinds of quote, psychological problems. But not only psychological problems, if you have these higher levels of these, uh, experiences in, in your childhood or to some degree. Uh, but you, you also have a much higher incidence of, of physical illnesses like diabetes, like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes. Uh, symptoms physical symptoms physical illnesses and uh, pulmonary disease I mean it's really it, you know when people talk about uh, and you, you you're pretty fortunate I would say in, in UK because you do have the NHS which it's not perfect system but it really is quite an equitable uh, system um and uh, so it really, and it behooves the insurers, and in this case, the government, to take a serious look at the effects of trauma on overall health, not just anxiety, depression, suicidality, but again, of all of these so-called organic diseases. I actually was invited many, many years ago, well, not many, many years, maybe eight, ten years ago at the most, uh, I was invited there to have dinner with a, uh, Gordon Duncan Smith, if that is his name, and, uh, and some, and some of his people. And they were interested in whether this kind of trauma informed area could be helpful, uh, to, um, you know, uh, to improving healthcare delivery and reducing the level of, of, of illness. And unfortunately, I, I don't think it went anywhere. But um, uh, but again, I think these are important things that we have to consider, uh, you know, as a society, really. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you should say that, that you think we're fortunate here. Um, I mean, certainly my experience of the NHS is that is that it's not particularly trauma aware. We're not in a conversation. No, 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 no. I don't know of any that we are. Actually, it's California. <laughs> you know, if there's yeah. anywhere where that conversation it gets the most airtime and exposure, it's, it's and that's what I've spent so much time in California working on my own trauma because there just isn't the aren't the same level of resources and sure. expertise here. Um, so yeah. I think, but but you know, I so I suppose, but it seems to me that just the West in general, for some, you know, is 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 uh, is 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 finding it difficult to integrate all of this research um that yeah 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 no and the research now is really and thankfully uh the person who who developed this scale one of the co uh developers of the scale uh who i know vincent felitti um you know their their work was not used for decades it just kind of lay fallow and uh 
but now it's starting to show up in different areas. For example, uh, you know, uh, as intake when children are starting uh, uh, elementary school. So the teachers know a little bit about who are the kids who are, ha- who are going to be in struggle, who need extra attention because of their trauma histories. So it's beginning to seep into different institutions. And again, it's a very simple test. You, can, you do it in a minute or two, a couple of minutes. And it's and what, quite revealing. And why do you think people find it so difficult to, to take on these ideas? Well, I think we're all afraid of trauma. We're all afraid of, you know, if we acknowledge trauma in others, then we're going to be acknowledging it also in ourselves. And without tools, trauma rules. But with the right tools, you know, we can, we can touch to our traumas, we can meet to our traumas, and we can transform them. Literally transform them, changing the molecular memory of them through body awareness, through contacting the living, sensing, knowing body that exists in all of us. Yeah. And, and here's a, maybe a, um, a somewhat trivial example, but I spent 10 years doing yoga and I could never get close to touching my toes. Right. Mm-hmm. In the last three years, I've been doing rolfing uh-huh. and working yeah. deeply into the fascia um, around yeah, yeah, yeah. the top, the, around my hamstrings and into my psoas. Sure. And in fact, this morning I did a very powerful rolfing session and I can now not just touch my toes. I can pretty much get my palms on the floor. And mm-hmm. yeah. I, I know that sounds trivial, but it's just in terms of transformation, yeah. that was completely beyond yeah. anything that would have been possible in my lifetime before yeah. I started rolfing. Yeah. And the combination yeah. of the rolfing and, and the primal work I've been yeah. doing is, has been utterly transformative. I think it's very, very important, very useful, very important to do some kind of body work like you did at the right time. I don't think you, it would have been helpful for starting with them, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think it's very important. I actually, I trained with Ida Roth in 1969 and 1970, and I, I, I greatly uh, honor her and appreciate her from what I learned from her. Um, so, so yeah, that's a way really because the trauma gets stored not just in the nervous system, not just in the muscles, but also in the connective tissue itself. And Rolfing is one of the most powerful ways of getting to that, getting at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's your... <laughs> What's your focus now? Uh, you know, you're. Um, I'll tell you. Yeah, I know we've just had the, the, the last book, but yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I'm working on a couple of other books. One on healthy adolescent sexuality, <laughs> and um, the other on sh- uh, shame and dignity, shame, pride, and dignity. Um, but I'm working on a project which. Uh, one of it's really probably the biggest project that I've ever worked on, well, except for getting the institute together. And and you know, over the over the decades, I've probably worked with hundreds of people who have symptoms like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel, migraines, urinary problems, and so forth. And people with those kind of conditions do have a higher degree of trauma histories. 
but but anyhow, uh, you know, in in the U.S. alone, there's at least 20 million people suffering from some of those conditions. I'd say it's more than that. And worldwide, in Western countries, it's you know, it would be all of them individually. Uh, the majority of them have been able to eliminate those symptoms or reduce those symptoms dramatically so that they could function back in life. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, if there are tens of millions of people and, you know, we've trained maybe now 30,000 practitioners worldwide, there's no way that they're going to be able to reach that, those people in need. So I'm working on an online program to help people with those kind of symptoms uh, uh, reduce or even eliminate those symptoms uh, through different guide, guided uh, exercises, guided awareness exercises. Right. And I can, I can imagine an immediate pushback there. People, oh, isn't that dangerous? You know, people going in by themselves into this, into this territory. Well, you know, this is something that's been on the top of my mind in developing the program. So we have a lot of uh, uh, built-in uh, safety mechanisms, including the ability to be uh, in, a, in a weekly group with a person that I've trained, or if they need to be able to see someone individually through something like a Skype call or get information about therapists in their area. Uh, the, the, again, the, the, pro, the program does not focus on trauma, but we do have a, 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 a part that's really devoted to the fact that when you reconnect with your body, that it's very possible that it'll also bring up access to different of these different kind of procedural memories, or emotional memories. So we have ways to help people deal with that. That's not, not the primary focus, but that is a, an element of it. And, and we've, uh, had many, many discussions of how to put this into the system and how to make sure that the, that the interaction between the computer or the phone and the person is the right kind of interface that so we've hired, the person who's one of the world's experts, really, on human-computer uh, in interaction. So uh, I know we know that, I know that we can't be 100%, but we want to get very close to that and know mm -hmm. that we can help it the great majority of people with these kind of conditions. So that's a very big project, really, really big project, taken thousands of hours already. But we hope to launch the first one in January or February for a small group of people to, to test out the basic program. And, and this is aimed more at, so this is less about recovery and more about building awareness. Am I right? What, what's the, what's oh, it's the about, it, it's based again on body awareness and what happens is when people get locked into a condition like fibromyalgia, all they're aware of is the pain and they're not aware of the, the, the peripheral sensation. And as they become more aware of the peripheral sensations, often positive uh, sensations, then the, the, the pain starts to dissipate. Because what happens when you have chronic pain is people tend to hyper-focus on the pain. And, um, and that it kind of keeps the pain reactivated. So by having again new experiencing the, the areas of the brain that involve pain are also areas of the brain that process emotional information. Uh, 
So when we're able to to uh, restore those parts of the brain, the function of those parts of the brain to where they belong, then the pain signal uh, disappears or goes becomes less and less, or sometimes disappears, and then hence the symptoms disappear. So again, it's built on neuroscience. It's built on my, you know, forty-five years of experiencing experience of developing somatic experiencing and teaching it over the world. Um, so anyhow, uh, we'll be seeing what goes on pretty soon, but I'm going to have to leave right now. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. We'll put some links to the Institute. Um, right. And to right. The books uh, yeah. Come in, on in. in. And, um, yeah. I would, yeah, I know we've got over your 40 minutes, but I am extremely yeah. grateful for the conversation. Oh yeah. Gladly. And, and the website is traumahealing.org. Traumahealing.org. You know, we have trainings all over the world. There are definitely trainings in the UK and people who are trained as therapists in the UK. Okay. okay. Enjoy the rest all of right. your day. Thank you so all much. Right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.